Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you about the new Schmooze book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. Over the past 15 years or so, I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I can't tell you the amount of times I look and say, why are you doing this? Do you understand what the relationship needs? Do you understand what your spouse is thinking? I put together this book to detail some of the really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and the book has been extremely well received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to Chassan and college teachers, to marriage therapists, and the reviews have been really, really very heartening. If you'd like to get a copy, it's available on Amazon, it's available in your local bookstores, it's also available on theschmooze.com. If you purchase it on theschmooze.com, in addition to the hardcover book, you'll also get the audiobook as well as the ebook as a free bonus. If you'd like to do that, please go to theschmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Thank you. Gamarantinus tells us, A man should always be soft as a reed, and he shall not be hard as a cedar. A basic concept, a person shouldn't be tough, shouldn't be resistive. A person should be soft, giving, don't be hard. And Enigma explains to us where we see this, where do we see manifestation of this principle. Enigma explains, Shimon. One time, Rebbelezabar Shimon was coming from his Rebbe's house. He was riding on a chamor. He got off the donkey and he began walking on the edge of the river. He was hugely happy. He had a tremendous amount of simcha. He had learned a large amount of Torah. He had mastered tremendous amounts. And as a result, he was somewhat arrogant. Because he had learned a lot of Torah. And apparently he overstepped a little bit where he should have been. And his great joy brought him to a little bit too much arrogance. And then this Daman Lo Adam Echad, a man suddenly appears, Shayamchuya Biyosir, who is extremely ugly. This extremely ugly man says to Rabbilazab Rabbi Shimon, Shalmalacha Rebbi. Hello. Wallohiksalo. And Rabbilazab Shimon did not answer. Now Rashi explains to us that this man was actually Eliyahu Novi, who was being sent to teach Rabbilazab Shimon a lesson. At which point, this man who's standing in front of Rabbi Shimon Laza, and Rabbi Shimon Laza didn't say anything, and finally, Rabbi Laza, Rabbi Shimon says the words, Reka, empty one, how ugly you are. Is it possible maybe all the people of the, your city are as ugly as you? And apparently he failed to test. The man said back, I do not know. But rather go to the craftsman who made me and go tell him how ugly the vessel that he made is. Immediately, Rabbi Elizabeth Shimon realized that he failed the test. He had acted completely inappropriately. Once he immediately saw that he sinned, he immediately bowed down to the ground and said, Please forgive me. Please forgive me for what I said. And this ugly man says to him, I will not forgive you until you go to the craftsman who made me and tell him how ugly the vessel that he made was. And this man would not forgive Rebbe Elizabeth Shimon. 
it got to the point where he had to do something. <clears throat> so Rabbi Lazar Shimon began walking back to his city. And he was walking together, this man, with Rabbi Lazar Shimon. Eventually they both got to the city, to his home. Yatsa ben Iro, all the people of the city came out to greet the famous Rabbi Lazar Shimon who was coming back home. And they all came out to greet him and said, Shalom Alecha, Rebbe, Rebbe, Mori, Mori. Hello, greetings. At which point this ugly man who was walking with Rabbi Lazar Shimon says, Miatem Korim, Rebbe, Rebbe, who are you calling this title of honor, Rebbe? And they said, what do you mean to this person who's with you? <laughs> this person you're calling Rebbe? There shouldn't be any more like him in Yisrael. To which the townspeople said, why do you say that? And this man explained what it was that had occurred. And the townspeople said, please forgive him. He's an Adam God of the Torah. At which point the man said, I will forgive him for your sake, as long as he's not accustomed to doing such. And once Rabbi Lazar Shimon understood he was forgiven, he immediately was dorish this concept, a man should always be soft as a reed, and he should never be as hard as a cedar. And that's the Gemara. And while this Gemara is an interesting lesson and an interesting anecdote, I think it begs the following question. And this concept that the Gemara learns out from this case is the wrong concept. The concept of a man should be soft as a reed and not be harsh is something that we know as a midah. A person shouldn't be stubborn, shouldn't be obstinate, shouldn't be tough. Be soft. Give in. Don't stand there like a harsh, strong man. You'll tell me at most it comes from a midah of arrogance. An important, harsher man like me is not giving in. When I say I do and I will not budge because of this midah. So I understand this concept, this character trait of being soft and not being hard. It's either a behavioral pattern or it stems from arrogance. But that has nothing to do with the mistake that Rabbi Lezabar Shimon did in this situation. An ugly man, an extremely ugly man appears in front of him. And this man is not just somewhat unusual looking he was extraordinarily, uniquely ugly. And what Elizabeth Shimon demonstrated is a lack of sensitivity. He said something was inappropriate. He wasn't concerned for the man's feelings as he should have been. And he said, how ugly are you? Are all the people of your city as ugly as you? He was astonished. He was amazed. And he reacted in a way that demonstrated that he wasn't sensitive to this person's feelings. He wasn't focused on what his words would mean to that man. But where does arrogance come into that picture? And more significantly, what does that have to do with being soft as a reed and not being hard like a cedar? It's a wonderful concept, but it has nothing to do with the case that we're dealing with. And I'd like to see if we could better understand exactly what the Gemara means and what it's sharing with us. And to do that, let's focus on an interesting phenomenon. Ramosha Feinstein was a gon otzum, phenomenal Talmud Chacham, and he found himself in a unique position in history. When he was 20 years old, still living in Europe, he was already a, a Rav, he was already a Posek, and he came to the United States long before World War II, and he found himself as a Posek in a different world. It was a different culture a different way of doing things. And more than that, it was now a modern world 
with so many new inventions, so many new features. And if you look through the chuvas of Ramosha, much of what he did was groundbreaking and revolutionary because he took Torah true concepts, he took Yesodos in Halacha and applied it to situations, to inventions that had never been heard of, never had been known. And in a very real sense, Ramosha became the posik of the modern world, the one who brought the Halacha to our world. And interestingly enough, there were times when things happened that were quite eye-opening. One of the things that Ramosha had to do was create a system of measures. And throughout thousands of years, we've had a system of measures based on an ama, an arm length, and we have measures. One of the halachas is that there's a system of measurement of a kazayas, system of measurement of a mali lugmov. A mali lugmov means a cheekful. So for instance, when you make kiddush, you're supposed to drink a minimum of a mali lugmov, a cheekful of wine. But how much is a mali lugmov? What is the measurement? So in an effort to standardize this, one day Rav Moshe was with his Talmidim and he decided to measure it. Let's say an ama is 18 inches to 24 inches. What is the measurement of a mali lugmov, a cheekful? So the only way to measure it is actually to measure it. So he took a cup of water and had a measuring cup in which he, after swallowing, after taking in some water, filled up his cheek, and then he sent the water back into this measuring cup to see exactly how many ounces it was to determine how much a mali lugmov is. He did it once, <clears throat> did it twice, and he reached a certain shear, <clears throat> and he wanted to say that that was the halacha. At which point one of the Talmudim said, Rosh Hashiva, uh, the mali lugmov is a cheekful for an Adam Benoni, an average-sized person. Is it possible maybe we should use a, a different person other than the Rosh Hashiva? And Ramosha looked at him and said, why, what's the problem? And he tried it again. <clears throat> the fellow again said, Rosh Hashiva, Adam uh, Benoni means an average-sized person, and could it be that maybe we should use a person other than the Rosh Hashiva? And finally Ramosha thought about it and said, hmm, average-sized person, oh, wait a minute, maybe you're right, okay, we'll use you. And in fact, the other person's Mali Lugma of Cheekful was larger, considerably larger than Ramosha. Now, the point of the story is that Ramosha was four foot ten. He was a very small man in physical stature. But it didn't occur to him, and even when this Talmud said, could it be that Ramosha is not an Adam Benoni, not an average sized man? Ramosha did not think of himself as a small man, he thought of himself as an average man. Now, the reason why Ramosha didn't think of himself as a short man, as a small man, is because he was not focused on that world. To him, it was not a liability. It wasn't a limitation. He didn't have all of these thought processes, and I'm short, and therefore I'm lacking in stature. And, and he had none of those. He didn't focus on it. And in his world, he was an average person like everyone. Oh, you see, I'm sure. I never thought about it. Never focused on it. Now, this is interesting but in our world, physical stature, physical attributes are very, very important. And if a person has a flaw or a fault or a defect or a shortcoming, typically we're very, very aware of them. And it's very interesting to note what happens when a young person becomes aware that they're different. Let's imagine for a minute we have a fellow who's 8, 9, 10, and he's extremely short. There are two possible reactions when he realizes that everyone else in his class is much larger, 
and much taller. Either he'll feel crushed. I'm lacking. I'm, I'm, I'm not the same as everyone else. I'm, I'm different. I'm not as good. And sometimes the reaction could be the exact opposite. What do you mean I'm the good? Huh, I'm better. I'm even tougher. I'm even stronger. I'm even bigger. And oftentimes you find that that issue, the flaw, the shortcoming, causes the person to react in the exact opposite way. And instead of being crushed, he self-inflates. What do you mean I'm lacking? I'm the opposite. And sometimes this manifests itself in an interesting phenomenon. There's something known as the Napoleon complex. And supposedly Napoleon Bonaparte was a very short individual and the thought process was that because he felt inadequate, he overcompensated for that by becoming aggressive. And as a result, his ambition and his seeking absolute control and power was a manifestation of that. Now, whether it's true or not doesn't matter, but this is the point. When we have a flaw and we notice it, it hurts us and it bothers us. And there's one of two reactions that are typical. Either it crushes us and we have a negative self-image because of it, or we fight against it and we overcompensate for it and we self-inflate because of it. Now, both of those reactions aren't the true proper reaction. And the proper reaction of a guttle, a person who's fully worked out, is to recognize that Hashem gave each person a different life setting, some people tall, some people short, some people wealthy, some people poor, and all of it doesn't matter. But that typically takes years and years and takes a tremendous amount of personal growth. And the reality is that until you get there, typically, if you have a shortcoming, if there's something that you feel that you're different, that you're lacking, you're going to react either by being crushed or by self-inflating against it. And it's very interesting to note, because gaiva, arrogance, has two potential causes. When you see a person who's arrogant, self-inflated, boastful, bombastic, you have to look very carefully. It could well be that they feel that they're God's gift to humanity. It could, in fact, be that they're actual, genuine Balgaiva. They think the sun rises and sets in their honor, and they really are arrogant. And it could also be the opposite, it could be such a sense of inferiority, <clears throat> such a sense of I'm inadequate, and that pain I can't live with. So I, what do you mean I'm inadequate? Me? Do you know who I am? I'm mighty and strong and great and powerful and smart. And I'm, I'm everything. I'm just great. But either way, whether the cause of the arrogance is a overcompensation, making up for inadequacy, <clears throat> or it's actually inflated, the manifestations are the same. A sense of I'm important, weighty, mighty, and flawless. I don't have flaws. Other people? Yeah, not me. The great, mighty, me is perfect. And I'd like to share with you that I believe that that is the answer to Herbalozabur Shimon. You see, what did he do in this case? He saw someone's flaw, and he saw it clearly. But to see someone else's flaw clearly requires two things. Number one, you have to feel great. Because if I'm aware that I have flaws, if I'm aware that I'm not so perfect, if I'm aware that I'm lacking in certain areas, it'll be much more difficult for me to look at you and say, look at you, you're short or you're fat or you're, or you're ugly, look at you. 
if I feel in my essence that I too have things wrong with me, that I too am lacking, it's very difficult for me to focus on your flaws. And when a person typically sees the other person's flaws and sees it very clearly, it stems from an arrogance, a sense of I'm perfect, I'm great, I have no flaws, and therefore your flaws are far more obvious to me. But there's a second requirement in this situation. You see, what Rabbi Lazar Shimon was doing was looking at a Tzalem Lakim, looking at a man created in the image of Hashem, and he stared him in the face and said, look how ugly you are. Are all the people of your town ugly? That required a certain toughness, a certain resistance to the natural sense of busha. How could I say that to a human created in the image of Hashem? And the man's answer back was exactly that. Go to the uman, go to the one who created me, go to the one who formed me and tell him what an ugly vessel he made. You see, what Rabbi Elizabeth Shimon was doing on some level was not only inflating but being very tough and very strong. And on some level, he failed this Nisayan. It's difficult to know exactly how serious a floor was because he was a tremendously great person. But Chazal learned out this lesson. A man should be soft as a reed and not hard as a cedar because when you're very full of yourself, you don't bend. Me, the great me should give in. I should admit I'm wrong. I should apologize. You know how big I am. You know how weighty I am. You know how smart I am. A humble man has a far easier time recognizing his flaws and seeing what he does wrong. Doesn't see other people's flaws anywhere near as easily because, listen, I also have things wrong and doesn't have the audacity to stand another man in the eye and say, look at you, how lacking you are. And therefore, while this is a manifestation on some level of arrogance, as the Gemara says, it's also a particular behavior that comes from arrogance, a toughness, a strongness, and a man should not act this way, be soft, be humble, don't be mighty, proud, and tough. Now, with that as an observation, let's focus on something that is a very common mistake. We've discussed already what is the cause of divorce in our community. Why is it that there used to be so many fewer divorces and today we have so many more issues that are coming up? And again, typically when you ask people what's the reason, they'll tell you, well, it's extramarital affairs or it's there are issues that they're dealing with or it's a selfishness and a pettiness. Children are brought up with such luxuries and they're not used to saying no. And while all of those are somewhat contributing factors, I'd like to share with you that none of them are right. As I mentioned before, the cause of almost every divorce is something called fighting. Well, I know fighting, Rabbi, but it's, it's about the issues, right? They're fighting because they're petty, or they're fighting because they're bratty. Or they're, no. No couple gets divorced because of the issues. It's the fighting that causes any trouble and causes them to separate. Two reasonable people working together can solve almost every issue that you'll find. And the reason why young couples, and especially young couples who are recently married, find themselves in such difficult straits is not because they're so different, but because they're fighting over the differences and they're shocked about how they react one to the other. And you'll hear lines. I never imagined that there'd be so many arguments over such petty issues. Or here's another one. He brings out the worst in me. 
With everyone else, I act like a decent human being. But with my spouse, I'm selfish and insensitive. Or how about this one? We're just so different in so many ways. We just can't get along. I can't talk to her. I mentioned the most innocent thing, and before you know it, we're at each other's throats. And what you'll find is, over and over, the problem is the fighting. And once the honeymoon period wears off, once the initial infatuation and magic sort of wears off, many, many times the couple stare at each other and say, what is going on? And they find themselves embroiled in fights and issues that have no, that don't make sense. They're screaming and yelling at each other, and they don't even know what it is that they're fighting about. And by the way, typically, they really don't know. And many times, couples make that huge mistake, and they say the following, Listen, if we're fighting like this, and we're married six months, obviously it means we're not made for each other. It's not prashert. And I don't know the exact percentage, whether it's 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, but I believe in a huge percentage of marriages, you'll find that near the beginning, either he or she, or typically both, reach that moment where they say the words, Oh my goodness, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I married the wrong one. And it's not just a theory, they know it. We bicker, we quibble over the smallest, insignificant things. We argue back and forth and forth and back. It's obvious we're not made for each other. Quite the opposite. We couldn't be more different. We couldn't be more opposite. And obviously, we're not made for each other. And I'd like to share with you that that is no indication whatsoever. And the reality is that most couples are going to argue, they're going to bicker, they're going to fight and especially in the beginning, and I'd like to focus on why. <clears throat> why is it that part and parcel of successful marriage is these things called arguments, called fights? And the reason is because husband and wife are the closest relations in the entire human world. There is no closer relationship than a bond explains, closer than a brother or sister, and closer than you are to a mother or father. When a husband and wife join together, they become one. They become one flesh. They become emotionally connected. And they become attached. And with that also comes a very real vulnerability. You see, I'm dependent on you. And you're dependent on me. And we're very much together on this. If a stranger down the blocks calls me a name, so what? doesn't bother me. He's no one to me. If it's a friend of mine who calls me a name, that hurts. But what if it's someone who's close, someone who's really close? What if it's someone who I let into my world, and someone that I relied on, someone that I have deep feelings for, and they call me a name? A husband and a wife are closer than any other relatives, one to the other, and they're more attached and they're more vulnerable. And the barbs and the words and the statements that one make to another are far more hurtful because it's my best friend, the one that I trust, the one that I love, and I thought we were one. And, and how could you do that to me? How could you hurt me? How could you, you, you callously just <clears throat> say those words? And because we're emotionally connected and because we're vulnerable one to the other, 
It causes me pain and disappointment. How could you do that for me, to me? And because of this, I'd like to share with you one of the, unfortunately, I would have to call it one of the realities of life. And that is that the single person who most likely hurt you deeply is your spouse. The person that will most likely get you angry, more angry than you've probably ever been in your life, is your spouse. And the person that you will most likely hate more than you've hated any other human being on the planet is your spouse. It is unlikely that you've ever felt the intensity of emotions that you'll feel with your spouse. It's unlikely that you ever got as hurt, that you ever got as angry, and that you'll ever hate a person as much as your spouse. And why is that? Because that is the intimacy of marriage. Because you're so close, her words, his words, they penetrate so deeply and they cause so much pain. And it feels like a stab in the heart. And she'll describe it, or he'll describe it. It's like he plunged a dagger deep into my heart. What did I do to her? Why why did she do that? Why? And if you'd like to know what do couples fight about, it's never the issue. It's the emotion behind the issue. It's not whether he was late or he was sloppy or she bounced a check or whatever. It's the fact that he feels hurt. How could she have done that to me? It's the fact that she feels that she was stabbed. You're supposed to be my friend. You're supposed to be the person I rely on. And you left me waiting for 20 minutes in the cold and you... And when I told you that it bothered me, you didn't even care? How could you be so callous? And it's not the 20 minutes waiting. It's the hurt, the pain that she feels because she feels let down. She feels that he doesn't care. And instead of being my protector, you're someone else. And instead of being someone that I'm comfortable and close with, you're someone who lashes out at me. And if you'd like to understand marriage in general, and for sure in your own marriage, you have to focus on this one point. It's never issues that couples fight about. It's not money, it's not in-laws, not religion, it's nothing about that. It's about hurt feelings. It's about what it means to me, how I feel when you say that, what my perception is, and more than anything, it's the pain that I feel in my heart. And we human beings... And don't take pain that easily. When I'm pained, I instantly feel a sense I want to pay back that pain. You cause me pain and I want to give it right back to you. I, yeah, I, I feel it. You don't care about me. I'm not important to you. And that pain, and it's not just the disappointment, it's the pain stems, comes into me and I just want to dish it right back. And it begins a cycle, he says, and she says, and she says, and he says, and before you know it, they're deep down that turnpike. They don't know what they're fighting about. They don't know where it started. And it never has anything to do with the issue. It has to do with the sense of abandonment, of pain, which then surfaces with words. And this problem is a very significant one and very real in a successful marriage. Because if you wish to be happily and successfully married, you have to learn one to the other how not to hurt each other and how not to feel the pain. Oftentimes, it's the person who does the wrong thing. Sometimes he'll say something that's inappropriate, that's callous, that's not caring. Sometimes it is that she'll act in a way 
that really is hurtful. And oftentimes it is that a, that person has to change and has to act differently. And sometimes it has nothing to do with them. Sometimes it has to do with perceptions. And sometimes it has nothing to do with what he did per se. It has to do with what her feelings are. And oftentimes those feelings aren't correct. But one thing a person has to understand if they wish to be successfully married, it's never the issue, it's always the pain. And this is where things begin to deepen. A woman once brought her ferret to a veterinarian. Little animal, little pet. And the problem was that the ferret was constantly scratching its neck. Scratching and scratching and scratching. And the woman asked the vet, what did, what, what's the problem? Why is this animal constantly scratching its neck? So the vet said, well, the ferret probably, uh, probably has a stomachache. The woman said, a stomachache? Why would the ferret scratch its neck if it has a stomachache? And the veterinarian explained, at some point in its development, it probably had an itch, and it found that it got relief from that itch by scratching its neck. And it never learned any other behavior that could relieve pain. So now, anything that causes it discomfort, anything that causes it pain, the ferret reacts in the one way that it knows takes away pain, which is scratching its neck. So even though it's its stomach that's hurting it, the only thing that it ever discovered that stops discomfort is scratching its neck, and it scratches its neck constantly, constantly to to relieve its stomach ache. And I'd like to share with you that if you're a ferret and you react that way to discomfort, it doesn't matter much. But many, many couples get into bad habits because of a similar behavior, and I'll explain to you what it is. I'm going to pick one gender, and it really doesn't matter because it cuts both ways. But convenience, for convenience sakes, I'm going to assume that it's the husband who does something. So let's imagine for a moment that he does X. And X is something that bothers her. He knows it, and she knows it, and yet he does it. And she responds with anger. She responds with anger because she's hurt. How could he do that? He knows it bothers me. I asked him to keep the apartment neat. And he knows it's important. And the place is a mess. And she feels pain. And that pain translates into the response that she's accustomed to. She gets angry. So what does he hear? What he hears is anger. What he hears is anger. And what he hears is someone who's acting in a very aggressive way to him. Now, here's the point. It could be that she's 100% correct. You see, what she feels is that the reason why he's doing that is because he doesn't care about her. He doesn't look out for her needs, and he only cares about himself, and that's why, again, he left the place a mess. And by the way, she might be right. And it could be his job to fix the place up, to make sure that he's neater, and make sure that he's more sensitive to it. She could be 100% correct. And it could also be that she's wrong. It could be that the reason why he doesn't focus on this is because he really doesn't understand that it's that important to her. And he really doesn't see the pain. And it could also be that he's not yet ready, either immature or not capable yet of changing. And it could be that she has to be more tolerant. But regardless of how you slice it, what happens is that it becomes part of her operating mode. And now, whenever he does something especially if it's that thing called being sloppy or being late or whatever it may be, she reacts in the way that she gets accustomed to reacting. She gets angry. And after a while, he begins to anticipate it. Oh, my goodness, here she goes again. No matter what happens, she gets angry. 
and he begins to realize that this is the way she reacts. And it's not just this behavior, but it's other things that he does. She reacts in the same way, and a little bit like that ferret, she learns to translate the pain, the hurt that she feels, into a reaction of anger. She says words, and after a while he says to himself, oh my goodness, no matter what I say, no matter what we talk about, she gets angry at me. And after a while he anticipates it, and he knows that all he's got to do is begin talking about whatever, and she's going to lose it. Now she doesn't even have to say anything. He's waiting with bated breath because the minute she begins, even a whisper of there she goes again, and he reacts even before she gets angry to her anger, which may not even be there, and you have yourself in a very, very dangerous cycle. And unfortunately, couples find themselves in a cycle where they just get angry, get upset, they begin to react that way one to another, and they begin destroying their marriage and certainly their happiness. And I think there's a first step to focus on. The first step to focus on is, why are you angry? The answer is, you're really not angry, you're hurt. And if you focus on that fact, that it's not so much that you're angry, but it's that you're hurt, I think you'll find a very different way of reacting and a very different way that will affect your marriage. I'll explain to you what I mean. About 15 years ago or so, I stopped smoking cigars. I used to love smoking cigars. It was a habit. I didn't smoke that much, but it definitely was something I enjoyed tremendously. And some of my fondest memories are I used to take the kids out Sunday when they were little. We'd go for a long drive, and often I'd start the drive with a big, long cigar. And I remember vividly the kids would ask me an hour later or two hours later, Abba, what happened to your big cigar? Why is it so small? In any case, it was something I greatly enjoyed. And one day, my wife did the meanest, most underhanded, unfair move you could ever pull on a husband. She took me aside, and in a soft voice, she said something like, you know, I know you really enjoy smoking cigars, but I I really wish you would stop. Please, dear, do it for me. Oh, nasty, mean, underhanded. Ooh. What am I going to say? No. Needless to say, it's been 15 years, I don't touch a cigar, because how could a husband say no? And I'd like you to know that I wish you would have said something like, oh, it's damaging to your health, and it's a bad example for the kids, you better stop right now. And had she said that, I probably would be smoking cigars today. But she pulled that nasty, dirty, underhanded move, please dear, do it for me. And I'd like to share with you a fundamental for a happy home for a successful marriage. If you are hurt, let your spouse know that you're hurt. It bothers me. It causes me pain. Your spouse may react appropriately or may not, but I guarantee it will not cause a fight. If a husband or a wife comes to their spouse and says, I feel hurt. I feel let down. You're my best friend. We're together. And what I feel is, I felt when I was waiting on the street corner, I just felt like you didn't care about me. I felt abandoned. I felt that I wasn't important to you. And I can't guarantee you that will change his behavior or her behavior, but I can guarantee it won't 
create a fight. Where does the fight start? It's when that hurt gets translated into anger. That's it. I've had it. It's been enough. He's done this time after time after time. And I will get back. He will not get away with this anymore. You see, when you're hurt, you're a victim. And you have every right to express to the one who you're together with, to your spouse, to the one who you're bonded with. You have every right to say the words, I am hurt. And it would take a creep to say, I don't care. But when you translate that hurt into anger, you left me waiting there, you left again. Yes, you were the victim. Yes, you were hurt. But you've now translated that emotion into an aggressive, attacking mode, and you've become the assailant. Likely it is that your spouse doesn't know how hurt you are, but he or she sure does know how angry you are, and they now are getting those bullets, those arrows, those grenades right into their heart. And I believe that's the first concept for us to take from this chazal. La'olam ye'adam rach kekana. And you have to be soft. If you feel pain, pain is okay. And you express to your spouse. You have to do it in the right time, to find the right moment. But you express the fact that I was disappointed, I was let down, I feel hurt. And it never causes a fight. Well, I've had it. You've done it one time too many, and that's it. You're going to get it. And how many guys have to teach their wife, who's the, I'm going to teach who's boss. She's going to finally know that she is not going to get away with this again. Okay. Could be that you want to teach her who's boss, but I think you better find another business to be in because no one learns lessons that way. And the first yesod that you have to know about fighting is you can never win a fight in a marriage. If you say, I'm going to teach him, I'm going to really show him this time, and you use your voice, it ain't going to work. You see, if you're angry at a corporation, let's say you had a business deal, and you feel that the owner of the company acted inappropriately, you hire a team of hungry lawyers, and you sue them, and you could win. You might lose, you might win, but it's certainly a possibility that you win. You can never win a fight with your spouse. If you lose the battle, you lose. And if you win the battle, you lose. Because it's your beloved, the one you're together with, the one person who you're attached to, you're connected to, and you can never win a fight in a marriage. And the first you sow to understand is that when you have that emotion of, I'm going to show him, I'm going to finally get him to understand, you're not going to teach him anything. Fighting never works. Anger never works. Expressing your emotions, I was let down. I was disappointed Sharing what life is like from your end of it is very effective. But it's a minute you translate it into anger, and a minute you're going to teach her who's boss and who's in charge and how things are going to be, that you've basically sealed your doom. You've gone from being the victim to being the assailant, and you're going to fight, 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 and you're never going to win anything. And part of the job of a person in a successful marriage is to learn the lessons of how we human beings function. Unfortunately, the reality is that we will be hurt in a marriage because, number one, it's a huge learning curve. You've never been married before. And if you have been, 
<clears throat> it's not with this person. And each of us have our own idiosyncrasies and our own ways of doing things, and each of us have our own sensitivities. And it, let's even say that you're 80 years old and you were married for 40 years to another person. And that person is hugely different than this person. And what bothered him or didn't bother him has no reflection on this person. And because we are each unique human beings and each of us have our own sensitivities, the reality is that we will hurt one another in a marriage because we're so close, so vulnerable, so dependent one on the other that it just can't be any other way. And obviously the first step is for each of a partner in the marriage to learn what it is that bothers their spouse and stop doing it. And it's also incumbent upon the one who is hurt to react in the way that a person should react. And that reaction is, I was hurt. But the ferret who feels a pain in its stomach and scratches its neck is not effective. If a husband was hurt, for whatever the reason, he feels disappointed, he feels let down. And he says to his wife, you're my wife, I love you. There's no one more important in the entire world to me than you. And at the same time, I just want to share with you that I'm bothered. It hurts me. A woman cannot get angry at a husband in that situation. And if she does, it's because there was a lot of water under the bridge ready because they made a lot of mistakes along the path. And to be honest with you, this was one of my dilemmas when I was initially dealing with this series. You see, when should somebody hear this? The right time is before they're married. Learn the lessons, understand how marriage works. But the problem is that no one before they're married understands the reality. Fighting. <laughs> it's not possible. I love her. She loves me. <clears throat> We're only going to be so kind and so gentle with each other. Other couples maybe fight, but not us. The magic will go on forever. So before <clears throat> a couple is married, these concepts aren't no gayer, they're not relevant, and no one's listening. And after they're married a while, and they started the habits, and they started the cycles, and she started getting reactive, or he started getting reactive, and they started getting angry and angry, and each one began anticipating the other, they get into a cycle, into a rut, and then it's very difficult to break the cycle. If you'd like to know when the right time, the right time is right after the first big fight. If I had my druthers, and I could really <clears throat> sit with a couple, I'd wait for the first big fight and say, okay, guys, now let's get to work. Because now you see that it's real. But now you understand that it's you. And now before you created any bad will, any expectations, any of the anticipation of how my spouse is going to react, you can now begin the process of learning to be successfully married. But it's a process. At any point, it can be changed, even if it's long and deep. And even if you've gotten into real strong habits, it can always be broken, it can always be changed. It happens to be easier before the habits are formed. It happens to be an easier process, but it's something that's always doable. But this is the first step. And the first step is to understand that in a marriage, fighting is just about as efficient as taking your fist and smashing it into the wall. It'll never work, and it never wins. And the only reason that you do it is not to teach, not to educate, not to set him straight. You do it because we're humans and you react, and I got angry. And that's the first step to understand. I got angry. Not he made me, not he did it. I got angry. So stop and ask yourself why. And the why is because he hurt me. And if you tell your husband that he hurt you, he disappointed you, 
he let you down, if he's even half a mensch, he'll understand. Maybe he'll be able to change that behavior right away, maybe not, but it's sure not going to cause a fight. It's the minute you go from the hurt to the anger to the, the words that you go from being the innocent victim to being the assailant, and it doesn't stop. And I think this is so it alone, if we could really incorporate it, it would make a tremendous difference. But unfortunately, the reality is that a marriage is so close and each are so tied one to the other that invariably it's going to be that things are going to escalate. People's feelings are going to be hurt and they're going to say things and there's going to be a fight. So because of that, I'd like to share with you the three rules of fighting. If you'd like to fight in a way that you don't destroy each other, that you don't destroy your marriage, stick to these three rules. Rule number one, stay local, don't go global. And let me explain to you what I mean. And again, I apologize for using one gender as opposed to the other, but it's easier for me because I happen to be a guy, so I'm going to start on that end of things. But these are equally applicable one way or the other. A wife says to her husband, you never take out the garbage. You're always late. You never, ever, ever say the right thing. You always, always, always embarrass me. No matter, I have one question. He never takes out the garbage. Never, never. He's always, every single day, his whole life, everything's always late. He never, ever says the right thing. What she did was she went global. You see, she isn't bothered by the fact that he never takes out the garbage. What she really means to say is that right now, you did not take out the garbage, and I'm upset about that. I'm hurt about that. So, madam, tell him. I'm very hurt because you didn't take out the garbage. And even if you go from hurt to angry, I'm angry at you because you didn't take out the garbage today. I'm very angry now because I feel that you embarrassed me in front of my sister because you said the wrong thing. You see, when you go global, you never take out the garbage. You're always late. You never say the right thing. What is your husband going to do with that? It's not true. She's exaggerating again. And there she goes. From one little thing, she builds this whole case. I'm like, always, 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 always. And you're making it very difficult for him to respond to you. What he should do is try to listen. He should try to feel the pain. But when you go global, when it's from the single behavior that's causing you the pain or even the anger, and you extend it to everything in life, you make it a lot more difficult for him to listen to you. So the first rule is you stay local, you don't go global, you take the particular behavior or issue that bothers you, and you stick to it. Again, ideally it'd be expressed as hurt, as pain, but even if it got you angry and you made that step, it's I'm angry at you because, and you stick to the topic at hand. Number two, don't throw in the kitchen sink. Not only did you come late, but last week you, you, didn't, you didn't get the groceries I asked you, and the week before that you did this, and then this, and then this. And before you know it, every single sin the guy ever committed since my separation is brought out into the open. You know, they say women are great historians. Some men will tell you that their wives can recall every mistake they made in a marriage dating back to 1856. When you throw in the kitchen sink, you're not helping your marriage. Now, I know you're upset. I know you're feeling pain. I know you're angry. But stick to the issue. What you really mean to say is that it got you angry that your husband 
didn't do what he said he would do. He told you he would go shopping. He told you he would buy the groceries, and he didn't. Don't mention the fact that he also <clears throat> ignored you and also didn't bring in the paper. And last week and last year, don't throw in the kitchen sink. It's a particular behavior, a particular issue that you're angry, angry with. Stick to it. And rule number three, and this is probably the biggest one. And again, I apologize for doing it from this end, but <clears throat> let's continue with the example. A woman gets hung, <clears throat> angry at her husband. This proves just once again that you're the most irresponsible human being I've ever met. You just don't care about anything. You're, you're, you're unbelievable. You just, you just don't give a darn about a thing in the world. Why about this one? You're lazy. This again proves to me that you're the most lazy thing that ever walked. You're completely, utterly, totally lazy. Or how about another one? This just again is one more proof that I can never rely on you. You're not trustworthy. You're not reliable. You're just not a reliable person. Would you like to know what those examples are? And those are examples of something called character assassination. You see, it's true. He forgot to return the library book. Nobody's denying that. But therefore what? Therefore proves that his character is flawed. You see, he's completely, utterly, totally irresponsible. And he's the kind of person who can never be relied on. And he's the kind of person who's not trustworthy. Now, madam, with all due respect, it sounds a bit of a stretch. Okay, he didn't bring back the library book. People have strengths, people have weaknesses. But let's stick to the issue at hand. And let's not destroy him as a human being. Because do you know what he hears when you say those words? He doesn't feel your pain. He doesn't understand how much it bothers you. What he hears is that he's a worthless slime, that he as a human being has no significance. And guess what? His reaction to that is not going to be pleasant. He's not going to feel good about himself. He's not going to feel happy with the one who brought him that message. And you're not going to get back a willing, compliant husband. And again, it cuts both ways, whether it's a husband who says it or the wife, and I'm only sticking with one way because I started that way. But don't assassinate the person in front of you. <clears throat> don't tell me that their character is flawed. <clears throat> don't learn out from this all types of lessons about who they are and what they are. There's an issue at hand. The issue is the behavior, and it's not the person. Character assassination is something called murder. And whether you think about it that way or not, and that's how your spouse perceives it. You're the biggest slob in the world. I'm so embarrassed by this apartment. You never clean it up. I never take care of it. You're absolutely a worthless slob. What do you think he hears? He hears exactly what you said, that he's a worthless slob. And guess what? It's pretty difficult to be loving, kindly, forgiving, and change when that's how someone feels about me. And that's how my best friend talks about me. And that's how the person who I'm most open to, most vulnerable to, expresses her opinion about me. And these three rules have to be something that you practice, you stay local, you don't go global. It's one act. It's not that you never take out the garbage. It's this time, Sunday night, this time, you didn't take out the garbage. Number two. Don't throw in the kitchen sink. It's this activity. It's not and also that you're late and also that you don't treat my mother right. And also it's one particular behavior. Stick to it and don't assassinate a character. And there's something called anger. There's something called being upset. But when you start becoming a 
critical assassin of people. And that's what your words say. That type of behavior is very hard to be sovel, very hard to accept, very hard to hear. And I think it requires a lot of practice. Being married successfully requires work. Almost every couple who's happily married had to go through a certain time period. Some more severe, some less. But I know many, many beautiful marriages, very happily married couples who had time periods because you have to learn how to act with one another. You have to learn what bothers your spouse. And you have to learn how to react. And the three rules of fighting are, obviously, number one, don't fight because it never helps. Really, it's just anger. But that anger really is just feelings that are hurt. And if you express your hurt, no one is going to be angry back at you. But even if you get past that point and you're really going to say the words, stay local, don't go global, and don't throw in everything else that he did since my sabratious, you don't throw in the kitchen sink, and don't assassinate him as a character. And now there's another part to this, and that's the how to listen. And again, I apologize, and it's not meant against men or women because it's both sides. I've apologized for three times now. I hope it'll stand for the rest of this session. But let's again work on the side that the woman's angry at the husband. Okay, what's his role now? How do you listen? So I want to share with you rule number one of listening. And rule number one is when you're on trial, you defend yourself. When your wife expresses even that she's angry, and maybe it'd be better if she expressed that she was hurt and not angry, but she's expressing that she's angry, you are not on trial. And don't defend yourself. What your wife really wants more than anything is to know the key principle that she's valuable to you and that her feelings matter. You see, really what she's doing is she's feeling pain and that pain is being expressed as anger. But what's really happening is she's feeling hurt. She's feeling hurt and now she's expressing it as anger. Don't defend yourself. What you did was wrong. What you did was a mistake. You say, I'm sorry. Number two, listen. Listen very carefully to what it is that she's saying, and you'll understand her reaction is outrageous. She's out of control. Just listen to that woman. She's going on and on and on as if it's the worst thing. What is her problem? And that's, again, when you come to one of those key critical moments in your marriage, and you either destroy it or build it. You say to yourself one of two choices. She's a nut. She's a card-carrying mentally insane, no no question about it. Look at her. Her reaction is absolutely outrageous, out of control. There's something wrong with this woman. And I'd like to share with you that unfortunately, many men respond that way to their wives when they get bent out of shape. Many women respond to their husbands that way when the husbands get bent out of shape. And it's a very sad problem in a marriage. The correct response that a husband on the receiving end should have is, gee golly, something strange. Why in the world is she reacting this way? She is a sane, normal person. She's a regular human being. And she never get what is going on. And that's when you can begin to get to the issue. The issue isn't the issue. It's the pain. What she's feeling is left out in the cold. And she's feeling rejected. She's feeling the opposite of what she wants to feel. She needs and desperately wants to feel loved and cherished. And somewhere along the line, 
she got the exact opposite message. And while it's easy to understand this when you're not in the thick and the thin of things, unfortunately the reality is that it's very difficult to do Bishas Misa, and that's why it takes a long time. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of time, and it really requires a tremendous amount of effort. Is it worth it? This is the person that Hashem determined to be the right person for you. And this is the person who's designed perfectly for you. And if you do the work, you learn the lessons, you have a marriage, you have a life that's beautiful together, your best friend in the closest proximity, and you grow together. And if you're unwilling to learn the lessons, you're unwilling to grow, you suffer the pain. And there's one more thing that you're going to need, unfortunately, in this thing called marriage, and that's you're going to need to know how to apologize. <laughs> Me apologize? I should apologize when she's so wrong, she's so bad, she's so evil, she doesn't... <laughs> I never apologize. A person of my stature, my gr- I should bend down my head. What Chazala telling us <clears throat> is don't be tough, don't be hard, be soft as a reed, because the only person you're going to hurt by being tough and strong is you. And the reality is that oftentimes you will have to apologize in a marriage. And again, it's a man, it's a woman, both are part and parcel of this. And I want to share with you also three rules of how to apologize. Because a lot of times, especially in the beginning stages, Couples get into trouble with the apology itself, as in, I apologized, and not only didn't she accept it, she, it made it even worse. Forget this one, I'm, 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 I'm out of here. <clears throat> Rule number one in an apology don't ruin a good apology with a but. Listen, dear, you're right, I, I left you waiting outside for 20 minutes, and I know you, know, I, I know you must have been cold, and it must have been felt, you must have felt bad, but I want you to know that I, you know, I did it because I was taking care of a very important matter. What he just did was ruin the apology. You see, if the issue was his being late, if the problem was that he was late, and he explains to her why he was late, what's going to help? Not only didn't I mean to hurt you, but it was a good reason. Oh, Baruch Hashem, now, now I understand much better. But he's fundamentally misunderstanding what's happening there. It's not the being late. It's not the issue. It's the hurt. And what she feels deep inside is she feels dejected. She feels left alone. And she feels that her husband, her best friend, just left her there and couldn't care less. And you could explain to her all the reasons in the world you're going to make it worse. That's why you left me? And that's why you pained me? That's why you stabbed me in the heart because you, you needed to spend more time with your or a business deal? Or whatever. That's why? And invariably, when you put in the butt, what she really hears is, this guy doesn't even get it. Not only doesn't he... Apologize like a mensch. He doesn't even understand my pain. And what she will do immediately is help you better understand how pained she was. And unfortunately, oftentimes spouses are poor communicators. You know how bad it is? I was left there and it was 20 minutes and it was cold and it was. And she begins building it up. And even if she was careful in the beginning not to throw in the kitchen sink, and even if she was careful not to go global, it's going to come out now. And she's going to build up the avla, the floor, even bigger. Why? Because what she hears clearly is that he don't get it. He doesn't understand how much he pained me. So she's going to make it more clear. 
And what he hears is, oh my goodness, she's bigger enough than I thought she was. It was 20 minutes. It wasn't a big, and she's making like World War Six, and she's building in every, the biggest federal case in the world, and she's bringing everything. She's out of control. When you're ready to apologize, you say the words, dear, I'm sorry. I should not have done it. And you, excuse my expression, shut up. You don't say a but. You don't excuse yourself. You don't explain yourself. I shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. I'm sorry. And you stop talking. I had a young man who I had to train a little bit. They were having trouble in the marriage. He was a little bit tough. She was a little bit tough. There had been some water under the bridge already. And it took a little bit of work. And I made him apologize. But in this way, you must apologize and it can't be a but. I don't care what, no excuse, what I did was wrong. Did you do right? No. What you did was wrong? Yeah. You go to your wife and you say, I was wrong and there's no but. He apologized and said, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. She didn't accept his apology. He said the words again. And he said the words again. And he said the words again. And it wasn't a but. And I'd like to share with you that he said those words, I'm sorry, maybe a hundred times. And guess what? That fight ended. The marriage went into a different path. And Baruch Hashem, they're very, very happily married. But if you're going to ruin an apology with a but, guess what? You're going to ruin the apology. And you'll be right. It was not enough. I, I listened to the chazal. <clears throat> I bent my head. I was like a reed. I wasn't like a... And I went and apologized. Even though I wasn't even sure I was wrong, but I apologized. And she didn't accept it. So I'm right, right? And you'll find very quickly in a marriage, you have two choices. You could be right, or you could be happily married. Oftentimes, <clears throat> not to the same person. And many, many times, <clears throat> whether it's a husband, whether it's a wife, <clears throat> you're going to face that choice. I could be right, or I could be happily married. But oftentimes, being right and being happily married isn't going to go together. And oftentimes, again, it's a choice that you have to make. And at least being aware that it's a common choice that almost every couple has to deal with is part of understanding what a marriage is really about. Rule number one of apology is don't ruin a good apology with a but. Rule number two is maybe just as important. Rule number two is never apologize if you don't know what you've done wrong. If you don't know what you've done wrong, don't apologize. Now, you may say, well, it's never going to end. <laughs> I might as well give it up. Because there's not a single fight in our marriage that ends unless I apologize. And for the life of me, I can't figure out what I've done wrong. So I'd like to share with you an interesting conversation I had <clears throat> a number of years ago. I was renting a certain uh, facility. And the landlord, <clears throat> the office of the landlord did something that I thought was outrageous. They really acted in a way that I thought, thought was completely unethical, improper, and I was upset. And I called up the office, and it was clear from my tone of voice that I wasn't pleased. And the landlord, the actual owner of the building, calls me back and says, you know, Rabbi Schaefer, I, I want to apologize. Uh, you know, I didn't, mean, I didn't mean to get you offended. If I meant to get offended, it wouldn't bother me, but I, I literally didn't mean it. I'm, I'm sorry. And I learned a tremendous lesson from what he was saying. <clears throat> Would you like to know what you're apologizing for? It's not the coming late not the forgetting the groceries. It's never the issue. It's the hurt feelings. And if you don't know what you're apologizing for, you do know. You walk over, and again, I'm going to say it from this side because we started this way, but it cuts either side of the gender. You go over to your wife and you say the words, Dear, I'm sorry. 
I hurt your feelings. But you see, that's what you're apologizing for. It's not the coming late. It's not the groceries. It's never the issue. It's the you're my wife. You're the love of my life. You're the person we're together with. And I clearly see that I've hurt you. Instead of being your supporter, instead of being the one to protect you, I've hurt you. And I apologize. I feel so badly that I caused you pain. You always know what to apologize for. It's never the issue. It's always the pain. And there's no problem if you don't know exactly why. And this may sound like a contradiction, but this brings us to the third rule of apology. And that is the less you understand the reaction, the more you better get to work. Okay, you hurt your wife's feelings. And you made up. And then you apologize and you didn't say a but. And you let her know that why it bothers you so much. Because you're supposed to be there for her. You're supposed to be together. And instead of protecting her, instead of helping, you were the one perceived against her. And, and it troubles you. And you made up and you bought her flowers. and you, It's beautiful, wonderful. Now you had better get to work and figure out why did it bother her. What was it? And the less you understand the reaction, the less sense it makes to you, the more you had better get to work on understanding what it is that your spouse needs, why it is that they perceived it this way, what's going on. Because unless you're prepared to do this on an ongoing and regular basis, which very few people are, you had better learn what it is that bothers your spouse. A successful marriage includes a huge amount of learning each other, learning the situations, learning what matters to my spouse, learning how to communicate, learning how to deal. A lot of it may be basic people skills, but a lot of it is great secrets because no two human beings are the same. My spouse is different than any other spouse on the planet. And what works for one man doesn't work for another. What works for one woman doesn't work for another. And don't tell me, I told all my friends and all my friends agree that she's bop, bop. It doesn't matter. If it bothers your spouse, you had better find out why. And you better figure out how to deal with it. And these three rules of apology are, number one, don't ruin a good apology with a but. Number two, never apologize if you don't know what you've done wrong. What you've done wrong is you've hurt your spouse's feelings, and that's what you're apologizing for. And number three, the less you understand why their feelings were hurt, the more you have to learn, the more you have to study, the more you have to figure out. I think there is a tremendous lesson for us to learn from this Chazal. Rishim ben Lazar, as great as he was, and as much Torah as he learned on some level, failed in a Sion. But Chazal tells us what area he failed in. His Daito, he felt some arrogance. And when this very ugly, uniquely ugly person stand in front of him, he said, how ugly are you? Why? Because when you're arrogant, you feel inflated. You feel bigger, better. I'm way above everyone else. And you don't see your own flaws. If I'm perfect and I'm flawless, well, look at you. Your flaws are obvious and right there in front of me. And if you're able to recognize that I, too, am a human, and by definition, I, too, have flaws, it's a lot more difficult to see the flaws in other people. It's a lot more difficult to focus on those flaws. And that's one important yesod for us to take, one important lesson. But the second lesson is how the Gemara defined it. A man should be as soft as a reed and not hard as a cedar. Why did Gemara learn that out? Because look at his reaction. He looked at a Tzalmolakim, a man created an image of God. He stared him in the face and said the words, How ugly are you? 
Are all the people in your town equally ugly? How do you have the audacity, the chutzpah, <clears throat> to look a human being in the face and say that? <clears throat> the answer is there is a certain midah when you feel arrogant. There's a certain hardening of the heart, certain strength, and you, <clears throat> and you say things. <clears throat> we human beings are very complex. When a person feels a shortcoming, <clears throat> when he feels short or lacking to me in whatever area there's a reaction he either crumbles up inside and that's why we see so many people with negative self-images or he fights against and he has this overcompensation and i'm great and i'm wonderful either way it's destructive the right approach as ramosha demonstrated is you have to recognize that hashem gives out different circumstances and they don't define me you're not even focused on them they're not really that significant there but we're actors on a stage and these are but props on the stage but regardless, recognizing that the reaction that comes to me by nature isn't necessarily so kosher or so good is a huge principle. You see, if I feel pain, I feel pain. No marriage is wrecked because a husband or a wife feels hurt. The marriage becomes a problem when that hurt is translated into anger. You see, I feel something in my heart, much like that arrogant person because he felt short, he overcompensated and switched the emotion. And when my wife hurt me, when my husband hurt me, I feel pain. And if you go to your husband and you go to your wife with the words, I love you, you're a great husband, but I just want you to know that I felt left alone. No husband who's half normal will react with anger and that doesn't cause a fight. And the problem comes in when we just sort of don't pay attention and that hurt translates into anger and it translates into anger and it becomes habitual and it becomes natural and every time he's late or whatever it may be, she reacts that way and every time she does whatever it is, he reacts that way and it becomes a habit and like that ferret, it becomes almost the only behavior that we react with. Every time my wife does this, I get angry. And I get angry, and I get angry, and she learns to anticipate it. <clears throat> she learns to expect it. She learns that all she's got to do is hear me open my mouth, and there's going to be words that are going to come out that are hurtful. And there's no human being on the planet who will ever hurt you as much and as deeply as your spouse. Why? Because that's the relationship, the closest, <clears throat> most connected, and therefore the most vulnerable. And you will feel more pain in your marriage than you will ever feel in any other situation. You'll feel more anger, and likely it is you're going to feel emotions even of hatred, because they're natural. The goal, obviously, is to eliminate them, for each spouse to learn what it is that bothers the other and stop doing it, and the one on the receiving end to keep the emotions straight. I'm hurt. I feel left out. I feel left down. I don't feel cherished. But when it happens, you have to remember the rules. The rules of fighting are there's nothing that worth, that's worth fighting about because you'll never win. You never win a fight in a marriage. But if you end up fighting, number one, keep it local. Don't go global. There's a behavior. Don't throw in the kitchen sink. And don't assassinate your spouse. This just proves to me how you are irresponsible or reckless or unreliable or whatever. On the other side of it, you have to listen. You're not defending yourself. You have to feel the pain. And you have to learn how to apologize, and it means bending your head. 
And even if you don't feel you should apologize, and even if you don't feel you're wrong, you are wrong. What do you mean I'm wrong? Look what she did. Look what she said. Did she feel pain because of you? Are you happy? No. So you can apologize. Why? Because you know that fully well you caused your best friend, your spouse, the one who you're supposed to protect and love, you caused her pain. And there's nothing wrong with a husband or a wife going to the other and saying, I'm sorry. But I don't feel I'm sorry. Yes, you do. Did you want to hurt him? <clears throat> Did you want to hurt her? The pain that she feels. Are you happy? No, but she will. And oftentimes it requires an apology, even if you don't feel justified. Don't ruin the apology with a but. But you do worse and you do six times. Oh, you're going to just <clears throat> cause the fight to continue. You don't ruin the apology with a but. Even if you don't know exactly what it is you're apologizing for, you do know it's the pain that you cause each other. And more than anything, you have to recognize that there's plenty of blame to go around. Everyone is always looking for who is at fault. The minute there's a problem in the marriage, who's the problem? Who? It's her, is it she? Who's the one? And the minute a couple comes to the rub or comes, <clears throat> gets to a situation where they're looking for a get, who's at fault? Who's at, who's at fault? Was it him? Was it her? And I'd like to share with you, it's never him. It's never a her. It's a couple a unit that's not functioning. And both parties have full blame in it. Well, he's 60% and she's 40, she's 70 and he's 30. I, I don't even know what that means. <clears throat> it's a couple, it's a unit, and they have to learn to work together. <clears throat> they have to learn to be friends. They have to learn to compensate. They have to learn to make up one for the other's shortcomings. They have to learn to change. They have to learn to grow. And I want to close <clears throat> with one last thought. Ignat Semmelweis <clears throat> was a physician was the 1850s, and he was the head of obstetrics in Vienna General Hospital. At the time, he dealt with many, many of the women who would come for, to give birth. Vienna General Hospital was a research and teaching hospital, but it was mid-1850s, and medicine then was far more primitive than it is now. In any case, one of the issues that he had to deal with was something called childbed fever. Basically, women would die in childbirth. And they couldn't figure out why. <clears throat> One out of ten women who showed up in his ward died of this thing called childbed fever. And he studied it. And he researched. And he tried to figure out why is it? What's causing this <clears throat> sudden, why are these women dying? And it got so extreme that women wouldn't come to the ward. They would give birth in the street and then come to the ward because they were afraid of, of this thing, this childbed fever. And what he discovered was something interesting. There was another ward that also had women that were giving birth. But that ward, only one in 50 women died in childbirth. In his ward, one in 10, 10%. And in the other ward, only one in 50. But there was no difference. They used the same birthing procedures, the same laundry. Everything was the same. The only difference was that in his ward, it was all doctors doing the delivery. And in the other ward, it was midwives. But it didn't make sense. And he examined everything, and he looked at every possibility, and he couldn't figure it out. Why is it that we're dealing with five times the death rate? It just made no sense. It got to a point where he took four months off. He went to other hospitals to begin studying and figuring out what is it. And when he came back, he made an amazing discovery. When he came back, he found that the death rate in his ward had dropped to one in 50, the same as the other ward. When he was there, it was 1 in 10. When he had left, it had dropped to 1 in 50. 
And now this really troubled him. He examined everything. He equalized everything. He made sure that everything was the same. But back then they didn't understand <clears throat> disease. They didn't know about germs. When a person had swelling, it meant that too much blood, so it would let out blood. A person had difficulty breathing, so you help <clears throat> ventilation. And he searched and he searched, and the only difference he could find was one fact. He was very involved in research. <clears throat> he spent more time than any other doctor, and certainly than the midwives, with cadavers. In fact, what he would do on a regular basis is he would go down to the cadavers to <clears throat> do the various procedures to study, and then he'd come right back to <clears throat> help the women give birth. And he reached a very interesting conclusion. In his words, he said, there are particles on the dead cadaver that gets onto the hands of the doctors, and the doctor themselves infect the patients, and the reason why these women are dying are because the doctor brings these particles to the patient. There was no such concept of germ theory at the time. What he said was considered radical, but he instituted a policy. Every doctor must wash their hands with lime and chlorine mix before they touch a patient, and almost immediately the death rate dropped to one in a hundred. And he realized that he had discovered something, and this was the pre precursor to the germ theory. <clears throat> he had discovered the secret that it was the doctors themselves that were spreading the disease. And in the end, he exclaimed, he said to himself, Oh my, how many patients have I sent to the grave? But he can't be blamed, and he didn't know better, and he didn't understand that he, the doctor, while trying to heal, <clears throat> was doing the most damage. If you don't understand the underlying disease, <clears throat> you can't cure the patient. And I'd like to share with you that I believe that that is an incredibly <clears throat> pertinent parable for marriage. So many couples get into trouble, <clears throat> and it's always her fault, his fault, her fault, his fault, mine, his, no, no. And each of them will give you an entire litany an entire scorecard book filled with all of the avlas, the faults that he had and she had. And I'd like to share with you, if you're in a marriage, you're not innocent. It could be that he says stronger words. It could be that you say stronger words. It could be that he contributes less. It could be that you contribute less. But there's no one who's innocent. You don't realize it. You don't focus on it. But you're a contributor in this marriage. You're a contributor for the positive, you're a contributor for the negative, and many innocent spouses don't recognize the damage that they bring to a marriage. I'm the doctor, I'm here to help. But you have to understand what a marriage is about, you have to study marriage, you have to study your spouse, you have to recognize what it is that he or she needs, and you have to understand there's one union Hashem created for you, the perfect match, and that match was made in heaven. But it's up to you to make the marriage, and it means learning, it means changing, it means growing. May Hashem grant us the wisdom, understanding, and ability to put this into practice.